the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, Great to be back. Hope you had a wonderful weekend, a long weekend. It was a great weekend for me. Lots of family time and um, had some family in visiting. So that was really fun. So hope people had a good time. All right. Uh, We have a lot to cover, a lot to cover over the weekend. Although happily, much of the news from the weekend was lighter, I think. It feels like it was, at least. There wasn't quite as much to cover. But uh, on on, uh, Friday, President Biden's uh, budget was released And there was one glaring aspect of the budget that is unbelievable, uh, but unsurprising. I'll say that's right. It's unbelievable because I don't want to believe it's happening, but it's unsurprising because it's so consistent. But before we get to that, let me remind you, visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com to sign up for the daily email that comes in your email boxes Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. East Coast, 5 a.m. Pacific time. Go to ProAmericaReport.com, sign up there, right? Just put your email address in, bam, you get it to your email. You'll join 80,000 plus people who get that email every day. It's... um a really, really uh, helpful thing. I hope you'll enjoy it and please sign up. Also, you can look at ProAmericaReport.com, all the great interviews from this program, including over the weekend, a couple of folks texted me about some interviews. You can go there and look at them. Okay, <clears throat> what you need to know about today before we get to the main, main story of this is I did mention this a few weeks ago and I was disturbed by it <clears throat> and it turns out that I was... um I was onto something that now is being covered by the media. And that is this, that um, when we have a crisis, as we did with the pandemic, lots of things change, many of them temporary, temporary, but some of them permanently. So hopefully soon all our schools will go back in person. Uh, our people are wearing um, uh, no face coverings and going out to church and other places everywhere almost. So that's all changing. But one thing that changed dramatically in the pandemic was the presence and the desire for uh, telemedicine. Because telemedicine made it possible that you would be able to go to the doctor and not have to sit in a waiting room with other sick people, right? It made total sense if we were trying to figure out how to stop the spread of this contagion. Well, at the time it happened, there also was telemedicine, not just, you know, to keep keep people out of uh, um, waiting rooms, but not only just to uh, diagnose COVID, because there's lots of other things people needed to examine. They'd have a skin lesion, they'd have a sore throat, all kinds of things, and including... Telemedicine was used for abortion counseling. Now, you know, oh, one more thing about the telemedicine is a lot of the telemedicine happened also across state lines because there was the ability for people to go across state lines and get, uh, 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 meaning a doctor could be licensed in, um, California, but see a patient in in Florida or California and Arizona or Virginia and Maryland. And that was a convenient. If you were licensed in uh, Virginia, you could see patients somewhere else. And that was a, again, you, you kind of shook your head and said, why the licensing requirements for doctors? Why can't they standardize it? But it's always been the tradition. But back to the abortion question, <clears throat> telemedicine could diagnose uh, or could do, do treatment uh, or uh, <clears throat> visits or whatever you call it, consultations for abortion. You say, well, but you still got to come in and do an abortion. No, that's where it gets even worse. Because 
The presence of telemedicine, and now, just a few weeks ago, about in early April, the Biden administration said we should allow drugs, chemical abortion drugs, to be prescribed by telemedicine. <clears throat> so if a vulnerable woman has a uh, pregnancy and, uh, and, and doesn't have the support she needs or for whatever reason thinks she wants an abortion, not only does she not have to go to a doctor in person, she doesn't even have to go to a clinic for the abortion. And the FDA, I think it was, the Biden administration, when it announced this, basically admitted that, you know, there are some studies out there that say that the chemical abortion drugs, which basically triggers abortion in a woman, that they can have some problems, but they don't outweigh uh, this terrible pandemic and the threats. Nonsense. It's nonsense. Especially now, the idea of in April extending this indefinitely is what they're saying is just a way to further abortion. Well, again, it's unbelievable, but not surprising. And here comes the next shoe to drop on Friday for the first time in decades. The Biden administration put out their proposal for the budget and they eliminated the Hyde Amendment. Now, the Hyde Amendment was uh, put into law by Henry Hyde, the congressman from Illinois, who was very pro-life. And the Hyde Amendment basically says, and I summarize, tax dollars shall not go to abortion. In other words, you can have um, some abortion counseling and we can have health counseling, but you can't actually pay for abortions with tax dollars. And that's been the law forever, forever, for ages. The Hyde Amendment. And the Biden administration stripped it out. Now, remind yourself, if you want to, how Joe Biden ran for office and often talks about how he's, uh, you know, very, a very Catholic guy, very religious. But this is really, really clearly one of the most pro-abortion administrations, even more so than uh, Obama. I mean, it's like they it's almost like because time marched on, they realized they're going to go further. And so we now have actively an administration that is pursuing tax dollars for abortion and also making it legal for chemical abortions to be given, to be administered through telemedicine. Think about how far we've come, how fast. And one thing that gives me some hope is that, you know, um, tax dollars for abortion is not not very popular. There's a pro-life meeting point where you poll, where you go out and talk to voters and you say, what do you think about these issues? There's a lot of people, probably people that know someone who had an abortion or maybe were involved in abortion themselves, either as a, you know, as the father or the mother, whatever it would be. As my wife would say, if you have 50 or 60 million abortions, you've got 20 or 30 million Americans that have had abortions, right? Because the number sometimes, some, some significant number have more than one. But it's hard to tell people that had an abortion that it's actually murder, right? It's a very difficult thing to do. You're not going to get people there easily. But one of the places where people agreed was there shouldn't be tax dollars going to abortion. And when you go out and poll young people, old people, middle-aged people, men and women, you get a higher percentage that will say no to tax dollars for abortion than you do for getting rid of abortion. Because, again, a whole bunch of people that have some sympathy for whatever reason for that option uh, are not as likely to be that. So that's a reality. It's popular. The Hyde Amendment's popular. And so my hope is that we're going to see some uh, some pushback and that it will become a real rallying cry for, I hope, conservatives or just people of both parties. Now, I do want to remind you. That the House of Representatives, which originates the budget, right, which has the first crack at the budget under the Constitution, they the Democrats ran out of office. The last pro-life Democrat, his name was Lipinski, Daniel Lipinski, I think, who is from Chicago area. And he was primaried by an AOC supported type candidate twice. The first time he held her off, I think it was a her. Second time he lost. 
just last time. So there's no such thing as a pro-life Democrat. If you've ever heard General Flynn talk about his mother, his mother was a lifelong Democrat, you know, union household, Democrats through and through, but always pro-life, 100% pro-life. That used to be possible in the communities, the Irish, the Italian, Americans that were, that stayed Democrat for lots of reasons, have some, you know, uh, um, uh, loyalty to the big city uh, s- machines, um, you know, traditional uh, affiliate, uh, uh, affinity for union house, union leadership, which were Democrats. But you could be a pro-life Democrat. You can't do that anymore. I'm wondering if it's possible. Poss- could we have the Hyde Democrats? You don't have to call them pro-life Democrats. They could just be the Hyde Democrats, H-Y-D-E, who are willing to say no to tax dollars for abortion. How about that? If you can't have a pro-life Democrat anymore, you know, Senator Casey, excuse me, Governor Casey from Pennsylvania was a pro-life Democrat governor of Pennsylvania. He was blocked from speaking at the convention in 96. His son now is a pro-abortion Democrat from Pennsylvania. So it is a progression amongst some of them, but it's mostly a progression because the party demanded it. The party, the Democrat party demanded it. They kept the, you couldn't, you couldn't stay anymore. You couldn't advance. You couldn't run from, I think that Bob Casey, the senator was like treasurer of, uh, of Pennsylvania. You couldn't run for Senate. You would have lost a primary if you didn't embrace that position. So the fact is that we, we've seen this, 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 um, drive towards pro-life Democrats being eliminated from at least national office. How about we just have Hyde Democrats? Hyde Democrat, H-Y-D-E, people that will embrace no tax dollars for abortion. Wouldn't that be good? That might be a, a con- is there a possibility that's a common ground? Probably not. Probably not. Oh, well, it's sad. It's sad. Okay, everybody, we got to take a break. We come back. We got a lot more. And don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com. Get clued in on all the great details through the daily email and a lot more over there. ProAmericaReport.com. I'm Ed Martin. You're listening to the Pro America Report. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. I've been really looking forward to this next uh, interview. Uh, Dr. Paul Christo is a, um, a doctor, and he's in particular uh, is talking on a, on a video I saw, which was over on um, HCP Live. I'll put it up on social media about the problem of opioid addiction during the COVID uh, pandemic. First of all, welcome, Dr. Christo. How are you, sir? Just fine. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's nice to have you. And, you know, it describes you as a professor of anesthesiology and critical care at Johns Hopkins and also a uh, practitioner. You're, you're not just an academic. And uh, telemedicine and telehealth um, are, are here probably to stay, right? They're very useful. But so uh, the question of addiction and opioid addiction, it, everybody's upset. And I just heard someone say, Doc, that um, after we get sort of through this, There'll be almost a disorientation because we'll have to deal with people again. We'll have to deal with a new routine again, and it will be a whole nother set of challenges. But tell me what happened in the in the uh, in the pandemic in terms of opioid abuse and use. Well, we certainly unfortunately saw a large rise in the use of opioids and opioid related deaths. Uh, It extended beyond that, frankly, though. I mean, it's not just opioids, it's other drugs of abuse, too. So we saw, uh, you know, I think over 90,000 was the CDC estimate, 90,000 overdose deaths during the pandemic. So that would be primarily, though, in, in 2020, some in 2021. Uh, the opioids have been the source of problems for several years. Uh, it started several years ago, probably in the 19, mid-1990s, when 
there was an increase in the use of opioids for pain control on the part of physicians right. and other healthcare practitioners. And so that's really sort of right. when it started. And then it's from there transitioned to the use of heroin, and then over the last couple of years to synthetic fentanyl, which is another opioid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and so, but um, we're talking with Dr. Paul Christo, professor at uh, Johns Hopkins uh, and uh, also practitioner, um, medical doctor, professor of anesthesiology and critical care. Um, but, but why... Uh, why is the increase? Is the increase because once you introduce the drugs, the opioids, people get accustomed to it, and so that's the addiction problem or the use problem? Is it um, is it just a reality of you know uh, thirty years ago you would have had people you, you kind of self medicate with more heavy use of alcohol and it didn't kill you the same way or cocaine and it did kill you sometimes the same way? What op it feels like the opioid use is kind of spiked in a way that's different, categorically different than anything else. Well, certainly the, the pandemic has unleashed a huge amount of stress for, you know, the population, really. So, unfortunately, mm -hmm. what happens during, you know, these times of crisis is that coping skills go down the drain. So, usually, you know, most people are able to cope with stress, but the pandemic was a huge amount of stress. And I, it right. led many people to use these mind and mood-altering substances Opioids, one of them, also stimulants. We've seen a lot of increase in stimulant use and death-related stimulants. These are drugs like methamphetamine and cocaine. So overall, during the pandemic, a huge stress for many. And as a result, a lot of them turned to these mind and mood-altering substances like opioids. But on the street, we're not talking about getting them from doctors mm -hmm. right now. We're talking about purchasing them illegally on the streets. CDC reported it at August 2020, uh, early data, I guess it is, but overdose deaths for August 2020 for the previous 12 months up 26.8 percent to 88,000 deaths. So that's that's about six months into the pandemic. Summers dragged on. Now we're another 10 months later. What do you fear the number will be in in August of 2021? The, the data on on overdose deaths. Yeah, likely to be over 90,000. I mean, in 2019, the CDC wow. estimated that we had about 70,000 overdose deaths. Hmm. I think it's going to be, unfortunately, even even bigger than that. Now, remember, these are all these are overdose right. deaths in general, not just due to opioids, though. Yep. Right, right, right. I know, I, I know, I, I was, I was, but um, so, uh, but I mean, you would say that the 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 over the opioid overdose deaths has spiked too, right? So I mean, but here's the other question. In in one of the pieces I saw that you wrote again, we're talking with associate professor over at Johns Hopkins, Doctor Paul Christo. Um, you referred to the fact that the age opioid overdose deaths hits 25 to 54 year olds. Is that because that's the type of the age where you would go? get that drug you know if you're 68 you're not going out on the street maybe or i mean why right. why is it 25 to 54 year olds yeah that's right so i think that we're seeing more of these opioid related deaths in young people so adolescents even ages you know some between the ages of 13 to 25 and more than say older adults i mean older adults yes but as you mentioned older adults typically would choose other substances like alcohol, for example, versus, you know, buying uh, illegal fentanyl right. on the streets. Right. Uh, again, we're talking with Dr. Paul Christo, associate professor at Johns Hopkins University, and uh, he also um, is uh, a critical care physician, uh, uh, anesthesiology and critical care. Um, 
But what with the fentanyl, um, you know, I get on this soapbox a lot. My listeners, Dr. Christo, will, will, will recognize immediately. We know that most of the fentanyl is made in China and the communist regime in China controls their economy. I mean, if you if, the, if you were the king of the world, if you were head of CDC or WHO, I'm just joking, the king of the world. But and you could say, stop one thing. The fentanyl in America, I mean, because it just kills, right? I mean, you don't get it. It's not like um, even heroin. It's hard. It's harder to die from heroin than fentanyl. It just kills people, right? It does. And so to put it into perspective, fentanyl is about 90 to 100 times more potent than morphine. So if you ingest it, you know, say you inject it intravenously, it is likely right. to kill you in a matter of minutes. It doesn't really take that long. And what we're seeing on the streets, right. too, is that we have these other drugs that are being laced with fentanyl. So, for example, maybe right. a Percocet tablet laced with fentanyl, methamphetamine laced with fentanyl, which increases the odds of death. Right. Right. That's the my point here is that China or somebody could stop the the fentanyl on the streets. Why do they put fentanyl in uh, the drugs in the sense that is it because people are chasing the high and they know that they'll like that? I mean, why 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 else would you you don't if you're a drug dealer, you don't want to kill the people buying from you. That's that's a bad business model. So why are they doing that? That's right. Well, I think they're doing it, one, because they can charge more. Two, they're doing it, I think, to get people dependent on the opioid and therefore to increase their consumer base. I see. So because if you do, if you don't die from fentanyl, you get hooked on it. I mean, in other words, you're you're right. you're, you're getting a, bl- a stronger blast of it. So, um, again, back to my point, though, shouldn't we just stop the flow of fentanyl into the country? I mean, couldn't couldn't that be a public health, not a not a Chinese geopolitical, not a immigration problem, although I think it comes through the borders a lot. But just a we got to stop the fentanyl that's getting the country. Let's stop that because you've got tens of thousands of people dying from that. Isn't that isn't that a public health position, not a political position? Yeah, I do think it's a public health position and a public health problem. I think that certain portions of it certainly are deriving from China. Uh, Other portions of it are being manufactured here in the United States. Uh, I think to President Biden's credit, he's developing, trying to develop initiatives to help combat overdose deaths, one of which is to, you know, support law enforcement to crack down on the illegal sale of these medications, of these drugs. Right. Is um, Again, we're talking with Dr. Paul Christo, uh, associate professor at Johns Hopkins, uh, professor of anesthesiology and critical care. Um, the what, what do you say to people? I, I previewed this a little early at the beginning. When it, we're coming out of the pandemic, people are starting to get to go out again. They're not as scared. They've either been vaccinated or they're of an age that they don't need to be, you know, young people or something. But people are feeling better. They're going back to church. They're going out to dinner, all that kind of stuff. But as I heard a mental health expert say, it's going to lead to all kinds of challenges because it's like a we, we had to we had to adjust to a pandemic, which was a total disruption. Now, when we go back, we have to totally disrupt ourselves. How do you advise people on sort of the things you can do to get control of of what drives people to end up doing opioid use? I mean, is there is there any kind of tips you give or ways to, to, to give people a, a sense of, hey, you're going to be nervous, tense, you're going to be. Uh, but here's better ways to handle that. Yes, I think that. First and foremost, uh, you know, we all have coping strategies when in the face of stressful situations. So I think it's number one important to identify what those are in you and 
uh, aside from, you know, turning to mind and mood-altering substances, right? I mean, what are those healthy coping strategies that you have if you don't have any? And I think you can turn to healthcare professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists that can help you develop those strategies, right? So, you know, for example, it may be instead of turning to alcohol or uh, to, as a stress reliever, it may be to go take a 20-minute walk. It may be to go, you know, maybe lift weights for 30 minutes. It may be to get together with friends three times a week, something of that nature, you know, that allows you to better cope with stressful situations. Yeah. But you must be in your position. It's kind of and I know doctors. I'm married to a doctor, by the way, internal medicine, uh, geriatrics doctor. And uh, but in some ways, you guys, uh, in a way, you have to get used to hard times. And you must be saying to yourself, again, we're talking with Dr. Paul Christo, uh, associate professor at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. You know, there's going to be there's going to be changes and people are going to have to adjust. But in some ways, we're in this daunting time. Right. I mean, it, it, it doesn't make your life dull, but it certainly makes it challenging. Very challenging. And, you know, remember this, that when it comes to addiction, what we're talking about here is we're talking about introducing a drug with rewarding properties. Mm-hmm. Could be alcohol, could be tobacco, right? Could be fentanyl, you name it. Introducing a drug with rewarding properties to a vulnerable person at a vulnerable mm-hmm. time in life. And that's we certainly, you know, we've had an extremely vulnerable period during the pandemic, and that's why we've seen a lot of people turn to these drugs as a coping strategy. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, they're in a vulnerable state, I think we're coming out of that state now, fortunately. And there's more interaction mm-hmm. with other people, more interconnectedness. You can see people, 12-step programs are available again in person. So I think, you know, things are on the rise and they're improving. Yeah, and although I think that the part of what you just said there at the end, I'd finish by saying it gives if you're doing well, and even if you're not doing great, not perfect, it'd be a good time to think about your neighbors and your friends and your uncle and your brother and your cousin who are not doing as well and are coming out of it because uh, they're you know we've all got a habit. It's, I mean, sometimes I hate to hate it. I don't want to say this about my family. It's not true about my family. I'm smiling as I say it, but sometimes it was really easy not to have to go racing off to Christmas at somebody's house. We just all stayed home. I mean, we stayed at home and had my family, right? I mean, now we got to go see, you know, I tell people, my father is a is a small town judge and it was always terrifying the amount, the amount of domestic abuse that happens on a holiday weekend. It's astronomical because of tension and all kinds of things. So suddenly you're going to have to go see your mother or your mother-in-law and it's going to be a different kind of challenge. Anyway, I've got to, I've got to run. Not, not your mother or mother-in-law, um, uh, Dr. Christo. I'm sure they're perfect. But uh, Dr. Dr. Paul Christo, professor of anesthesiology and critical care, thanks for your time. He was over at Johns Hopkins. A very interesting, important discussion. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. We'll take a break, everybody. Be right back. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up for the daily email there. And uh, also, all these great interviews are posted over there. All right. So I I was just telling Noah off the air, it's probably his parents, his friends, his buddies from high school texting an email and saying, oh, man, it's great when Noah gets out from behind the mic or whatever it is, behind the whatever, and starts talking. Well, here we got another chance. And here's the topic I want to ask Noah, our fearless uh, producer uh, about he hosts his own program noah dingley of course is this noah you grew up in la area is that right i did it's a sickness still being a dodger fan living in san diego but i grew up in la for the first about 12 years of my life 
And then you've been down in, in further south San Diego area, San Diego area for the, la- the rest of your life, which you're yep. like 81. Um, so you've been great. I mean, it's great to see you age. You look great. Um, but here's the question I want to ask you. How do you see, and I'm being serious now, over the scope of decades, the problem of illegal immigration slash the problem of just immigration, right? I mean, when you're a kid or when you're working hard, you're not paying attention. You're not necessarily thinking illegal immigration, just thinking lots of things are changing, right? When you were 10, not everything was in Spanish, right? And and, and in addition to English or whatever. So give me the trajectory of your life observation on the immigration question. Well, growing up, I mean, I went to an elementary school that was I think at the time, pretty diverse. And there were lots of actually my my best friend that I met in elementary school was of uh, the Hispanic uh, background. And there was lots of Spanish speaking people at the time. Anybody that I knew that was in the system, as it were, at that point, they all came over the right way. They all came over the legal way. Some of them, it took them a little Mm. longer. Some of them were able to get through on a, you know, pretty quick process. What I've noticed over the years, especially since I've become an adult, is, yeah, there's still some people that do it the right way. My hat's off to them. That's America. That's what makes America great, whether you're, you know, coming from Canada, whether you're coming from Mexico, whether you're coming from overseas. You do it the right way. You come, you make a better future for yourself in the United States. That's what sets us apart from other nations. But I do see a lot more people that, okay, we're in crisis. We got to move. We got to go to the United States as soon as possible. We got to forego the process. And that's not that I might not do the same thing if I were in their situation. Everybody's situation is different. However, it's not right to make other people do it the right way and to try and come in and instantaneously make a life for yourself in the U.S. And, you know, it's a domino effect. And then you're taking resources from other people. Again, as time goes on, I do see more and more of that from all over the place. Well, I, and and so again, we're talking with Noah Dingley, our the producer of the show, and has his own program over on the Answer San Diego, and uh, and is at, uh, works on the Andrea K show too. So you see him all the time. Uh, but how's it changed in terms of your friends? And and you know, you're, because now you are yourself a conservative commentator, and you know, you speak out on the issues. You're kind of you know, you're you're not exactly you're no longer just a working guy. Are your friends that growing up did uh, have they also become? more um more critical of the immigration question or are they mostly just moving along no they're pretty much exactly where i am and it doesn't matter whether they are hispanic and i actually do have a lot of hispanic friends or they're whether from some other background they take it very seriously that they went through their parents did it the right way or their grandparents and they saw the struggle it took for their families to get to where they're at and they think that everybody should have to have that same opportunity there shouldn't be a fast track for that matter there should be a process whatever however it's outlined by a certain administration you go through that process and you get to the other side and you make a better life for yourself um, so how about in terms of uh, along comes 2015, 16, and Trump decides to run, moving on, obviously immigration was one piece of it, so you heard that, but what was your reaction to that? I mean, as somebody who's observed these and these you know, candidates and different things, did you think, oh, this is never going to work? I wanted to try and give, I always try and give somebody that I 
support and I was a pretty big Trump supporter early on, I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt. And if he says that he's got this plan and he wants to put it into action, you can't really poo-poo a plan unless you see what it's going to do. Unfortunately, the Biden administration has no plan except for letting everybody across at once to gain more voters. And that's definitely not going to work. So I wanted to give the Trump administration, even though they weren't inaugurated at the time, kind of a let's see what happens. And I think that we had some great policy under the Trump, the Trump administration. I, In many ways, immigration, one of them, they did it the right way. Is the um, and uh, but now has the environment changed in terms of, again, same kind of question you watch the immigration issue because it, it, it feels feels like Donald Trump m- m- changed our our viewpoint on a couple of major issues. One is China. And one is, uh, immigration. You know, by the time he was done, more Americans believe China was an enemy and not just a sort of trading partner. And on immigration, I think more Americans said this is a problem. Uh, and yet here we are with the Biden administration is just flooding America with more, uh, illegals. And I think the more people you talk to at, out on the street and I try and have conversations with, with, people and you know sometimes political stuff comes up sometimes it doesn't uh, family friends what have you again the more people i talk to the more i actually hear we have a huge problem right now and for people that are just being willy-nilly let in to our country again not judging their situation because if i were in their situation perhaps i would do the same thing i would like to think i would do it the right way and go through the process so not judging that but you have to have a system in place and you can't just let for, oh, you know, it feels good and we feel bad for these. Let them all, you know, let them all in. We'll figure you can't do that. And that's what I feel the Biden administration is doing. You have 11 million people that they're just wanting to let into this country. And that's a problem if you're not doing it on a, you know, constructed and legitimate path. Hey, we're talking again with Noah Dingley and uh, are the producer on the program, but also uh, has his own show and uh, is active and uh, helps Andrea Kay do her show and is on the air with her sometimes. Uh, Noah, how about for jobs? When you see the illegal immigration question, the impact on young people's jobs, do you do you see it's, uh, you know, you get a lot of arguments says, oh, well, they, Americans won't do those jobs. So we got to have those people. in. What, what's your thoughts? No, I did completely disagree with that. There's people, especially fresh out of high school, that are looking for that first job. And it's becoming increasingly harder to get employment. And so they're looking for something just to get their foot in the door that can maybe help them through college. And to say that there are certain Americans that aren't willing to do that, I completely disagree with that 100%. So again, back to the illegal immigration issue. If you're just letting people across the border willy-nilly to take some of these jobs, good, hard-working Americans, fresh out of high school or from any other walk of life, that, those are opportunities they're not going to have, and that's not fair. Uh, it's interesting to, to see what, you know, you can't tell in between elections what the flow, you know, what the sway, swing back and forth, I mean, you know, is, but it certainly feels like this on this issue, people are, um, people are fed up with it. On the other hand, you know, there's not a lot, of, there's plenty of jobs. I mean, people, you know, they're, 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 the idea that they're complaining about jobs, uh, I, I was talking to someone who, who runs a, uh, a restaurant. He, he can't keep, he can't get people to work. Part of that is he says that people are staying home because they're getting paid to stay home. Uh, but even that, I don't know how well, how, how well 
well, that uh, is... Yeah, I agree with I'm, that. I, I think COVID has changed that environment a little bit. But again, you're taking opportunity away from Americans that are willing to work hard. Well, and the other thing is I tell people sometimes when somebody says that Americans won't want to do that job, what they really mean is at that price, because if you can flood the market with more workers, you can pay less. And so then you can say, okay, you're paying somebody $10 an hour for backbreaking work. Well, if you took a million or two or three million people out of the job market, job market, you'd have people they'd pay $15 an hour, right? I mean, that's how, that's how, uh, that's how statistics works. That's how economies work. It, uh, so what's your sense though of the issue in terms of, uh, Will it matter in 2022? This, oh, in 2022, it's going to matter and on a grand scale because what you're going to see, depending on what happens in these next, you know, in the next year plus, is the people that are going to be in the country that are, uh, you know, maybe given a quick path. Who are they going to look to for leadership? They're going to look to the people that let them in the country. And as, as of this point, that is the Biden administration. And all that does is further cement the Democrats in power, which is what their whole game plan is this entire time. Mm-hmm. All right. Noah Dingley, thank you, as always, for your opinions and for all your help. It's great to have your voice out there. We'll take a break, everybody, and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Presenting a daily conservative pro-family perspective since 1983 and continuing the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. I hear from conservatives all the time who tell me they don't have to be active in the grassroots because they live in a supposedly conservative state. Too often these good folks are lulled into complacency just because a certain party controls certain state offices. Don't fall for these tricks. Some Republicans are so compromised that they will never take the conservative positions when it really counts. A sad example of this comes from the great conservative bulwark of Arkansas. Proving again that Trump's Republican critics are closet liberals, outgoing Governor Asa Hutchinson, a Trump critic, shockingly sided with the left to endorse transgender operations on minors. Defying all common sense and decency, Hutchison vetoed a bill that would have made it illegal for a minor to be subjected to hormone blockers or gender reassignment surgeries. Donald Trump was quick to call out this lunacy. Trump said Asa Hutchinson, the lightweight rhino governor of Arkansas, just vetoed a bill that banned the chemical castration of children. Bye bye, Asa. That's the end of him. Fortunately for the great state of Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders will do a fantastic job as your next governor. Trump was smart to add a plug for Sanders, who served as a standout conservative press secretary for his presidential administration amid an unending media onslaught. The so-called Republican, Asa Hutchinson, just doesn't measure up. Trump wasn't the only one to call out Hutchinson's craziness. The very next day, the Arkansas legislature overrode his veto. And Hutchison defiantly complained about the now prohibited practices, saying that Arkansas kids might be taken out of the state to have them performed anyway. Can you imagine the nerve of this guy? He's literally saying that Arkansas should legalize child abuse so that abusers don't take the children to other states. Do you think child abuse is too strong a term for this barbarity? I don't think it's strong enough. Children cannot give consent to have their healthy anatomy permanently altered. No parent should be allowed to play God with their child. And any politician who affirms this cruelty is unworthy of our money, our votes, or our respect. 
This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. For more than 50 years, Phyllis led the fight against the dead-end road of radical feminism. Today, with the rise of so many savvy young conservative women, new voices are emerging. You're invited to voice your opinion on what's really important to women at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. I got an email from one of our listeners over the long weekend, and he forwarded me, forwarded me an article, one of you. I'm sorry, I'm looking for his email. Thomas, I think was his name, but I'll find it in a second. But I have the article in front of me, and it's from the uh, American Conservative, American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com, and the title is Why Republicans Must Rethink Antitrust. Now, I have to tell you, the more I talk to people, and it reminded me of this, is earlier on, I think Tuesday, I had lunch with a new friend, a retired military guy, a colonel who worked in national security, and this topic came up. The, the question of... How can you possibly get control of the massive media uh, conglomerates, the big tech? You know, and, and you guys hear me talk about it all the time. Well, our friend Rachel Bovard, who has uh, been on the show many times and is really a great, well, she's a great, um, she's a great leader. She's out there a lot on some key uh, issues. And she right now is the senior director of policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute. And uh, she's also uh, worked on the on one of the uh, uh, internet accessibility projects with Mike Davis. But she writes a long piece and very nice, very helpful. And it basically challenges conservative Republicans to get a little more focused on the fact that you can't antitrust is not the old antitrust. We're dealing with a different moment in history. And again, I was what I can tell you is I've more and more people, this uh, old timer, a, co- a colonel, and we had lunch and I said something, I said, how do you try to control? How do you try to manage for the impact of big tech? Because he's a conservative guy and he wants to get his voice out on some key issues. And he said, well, first of all, he went to a long riff and he said, and that's why we have to use antitrust and break up the, the big tech companies like Google. And I, I actually meant what do you practically do right now? Not what you want the future to be, but he went on this long riff and he actually came up one, one line he said is just as a practical matter, stop saying Google something when you want to search for something. He said, start using other search engines, but just mostly try to change the language of the uh, of the usage and that was kind of interesting and he went on to, he's a he's a professional uh, uh, military intelligence guy so he's not he's not doesn't not somebody who doesn't know what he's talking about but back to my uh, this Rachel Bovard piece you go through it she marches through enough of the history and she's you know the antitrust law of course was the framework the legal framework that was uh, uh, used to stop the trusts that were basically monopolies in uh, in our uh, uh, nation in the turning uh, at the turn of the last century in the 1900s, late 1800s and early 1900s. And she makes the argument, hey, there's plenty of free market people that believe that the free market capitalism that we love requires antitrust theory because it's precisely the free market that's not free because of uh, of the antitrust. And my point on this is it is brutal if you really focus and I you, you all hear me talk about it all the time, the narrative machine, it's brutal to think how you can beat the narrative machine. Over the weekend, you saw that quote from um, General Flynn. Given a, given an, he was giving a uh, a talk in uh, Dallas. Got asked a question about a coup or something. He answered the question kind of inartfully in a way, but he mostly a- answered it quickly and moved on. And the clip 
was put out on social media within a minute, not a minute, but within a moment, a few minutes, and it was covered on social media like it was, you know, a definitive statement. And it was just total nonsense, but it was dominant. And within an hour or two, because he thought it was important to do, he put a statement out saying, they're quoting me and saying this, that's just not true. And yet, 48 hours later, you couldn't really find, it's kind of like the old days where somebody wrote an article in the newspaper and lied about you. And by the time you, uh, by the time you go and, um, uh, um, if you, you go back to try to get a retraction, they put it on page, you know, 47 of the paper. Nobody sees that. That's always one of the complaints. That's the kind of thing that happens with big tech. They let something go out as truth. You never get to unring the bell. Another example, uh, Facebook has recently said that they will no longer ban or no longer shadow ban people who are talking about the idea that COVID was man-made. A year and two months into it, for all this time, if you talked about that, you were silenced. So where's the? think about how powerful that is to get control of us. All right, everybody, I got to run. I got to run. I'm running out of time. Thank you, as always, to know our technical director, Joanna, for booking our guests and you for listening. I'll be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro America Report. I will talk to you then. This is the Pro America Report on The Answer San Diego.